Hello, and welcome to the February 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up, we got a little bit delayed recording this month's podcast, but the upside is we can bring everyone up to date with all the Alabama drama that has unfolded this second week in February, as well as the huge news out of the Supreme Court in January. Where do we stand, Art? Well, the most important, of course, is that the Supreme Court has agreed to review the Sixth Circuit's decision in the DeBoer case, uh, which means that uh, combined appeals from four different states will be considered by the court. Uh, The oral arguments will take place at the end of April, and we assume that the court will issue a decision by the end of the term last week in June. And uh, a lot of what's, what's happened this month and last month contributes to predictions about what the court will do. Uh, We have to recall that back in October, the court refused to review decisions from several circuits which had struck down state uh, bans on same-sex marriage and, as a result, allowed those decisions to go into effect. Subsequently, there were uh, district court decisions in other states in those circuits, and the Supreme Court rejected requests by some of those state governments to stay those decisions, and so same-sex marriage just keeps spreading. Uh, And then we had, as we mentioned last month, this incredible development in Florida where the Supreme Court refused to stay a marriage equality district court ruling, even though the 11th Circuit hadn't ruled yet. And we had a repeat of that uh, just last week at the time now that we're recording the podcast in mid-February, that the Supreme Court refused to stay a district court decision from Alabama, even though it had granted cert and uh, on the Sixth Circuit case. And one of the grounds for staying a district court decision is that the Supreme Court is likely to grant cert in the case. And uh, so the state was arguing, well, you have granted cert on these constitutional questions, whether the 14th Amendment requires states to allow same-sex couples to marry and to recognize such marriages from other states. You've granted cert on that question, so clearly this is a question on which you're going to grant cert. Of course, the response to that is no. We granted cert on whether the Sixth Circuit erred in rejecting that claim. And we denied cert in the cases where uh, the lower courts had accepted that claim. So this isn't exactly like the case in which we granted cert. Uh, the, the main person who was uh, pushing that argument, of course, within the court itself was Justice Thomas, who dissented from the court's refusal to stay the Alabama decision. But we should back up a little bit to make sure we've covered the major developments of of January and February apart from the Supreme Court. Uh, One is that the Fifth Circuit heard oral arguments on January 9th in cases from the three states in that circuit. We had a win in two of those uh, states and a loss in one of them. Uh, The three-judge panel that heard the arguments seemed inclined, most likely by a two-to-one vote, to vote for marriage equality, which is a bit surprising uh, to people who had been anticipating the argument because the Fifth is a rather conservative circuit. But one of the senior Republican appointees on the panel seemed very much inclined uh, towards the marriage equality side of the case. The big question there, 
is whether they will hold up on ruling until the Supreme Court issues its decision in the Sixth Circuit case in June. And I think maybe not. I I would have thought it was likely that they would hold up ruling, but I think the court's decision not to stay the Alabama uh, ruling was a bit of a signal to the lower courts to allow marriage equality litigation to continue unfolding. Uh, we had developments in other states. In Georgia, a motion to dismiss brought by the state in the case of Innis against Adderhold, which was one of several marriage equality cases pending in federal courts in Georgia. Uh, the district judge uh, denied the motion with respect to the equal protection sexual orientation discrimination claim but granted the motion with respect to the due process claim and claims of sex discrimination. Uh, The judge said that because of 11th Circuit precedents, it had to be a rational basis case, having rejected the due process argument. So in in terms of the equal protection argument, it has to be a rational basis case. But he said he can't dismiss uh, on on a motion to dismiss on the rational basis case because there are uh, factual issues and because... Frankly, uh, based on what was in the record at that point, he couldn't see that the state had any rational basis. It it was going to be tough for the state to show that there was some important state policy that was advanced by excluding same-sex couples from marriage. Uh, But then, after uh, refusing to dismiss the case, the judge issued an order shortly thereafter saying that he was putting the whole case on ice until the Supreme Court decides in June. So we will not be getting a district court decision over the next few months from Georgia. Uh, Another major uh, development was that the Ninth Circuit had been petitioned by Idaho Governor uh, Butch Otter uh, for an on-bank reconsideration in uh, Latter v. Otter, which was the Ninth Circuit's marriage equality case. And the circuit denied the motion for on-bank review. Uh, But meanwhile, uh, Governor Latta, as well as his attorney general, have filed cert petitions, and the Supreme Court has been sitting on them so far. No reason to grant or deny them now that they're going to be doing the Sixth Circuit case. Uh, Then we had a new marriage equality ruling from South Dakota in Rosenban against Dalgard. And in that case, uh, Judge Karen Shire uh, dealt with it as a fundamental rights case rather than an equal protection case. So the interesting thing to observe as these cases roll out is which theory the court's going to use. If they're going to use a fundamental rights theory, then we've got strict scrutiny and it's an easy win for the marriage equality side. If they're going to use an equal protection theory, maybe it's an easy win. It depends whether they're going to do some heightened scrutiny as the rule now is in the Ninth Circuit or whether they're going to do a rational basis review, which may require a little more agonizing by the court. But in any event, uh, the judge ruled in favor of the plaintiffs but stayed the case pending appeal to the Eighth Circuit. And there was some thought that that is really putting it on ice once again until the Supreme Court rules. But the Eighth Circuit has surprised everybody by scheduling oral arguments to take place in May in appeals from three different states in the Eighth Circuit. Uh, So although it seems unlikely that they would have an opinion out before the Supreme Court they will have had oral argument, which would set them up, presumably, to issue an opinion shortly after the Supreme Court. Uh, They would be in a good position to do that. Uh, Of course, the Alabama case, as we mentioned before, uh, district court in Alabama, uh, Judge Callie uh, Grenade ruled in favor of the plaintiffs on a marriage equality claim. 
and she issued a brief stay until February 9th. Her opinion came out on January 23rd. Brief stay to give the state a chance to seek a stay pending appeal from the 11th Circuit. 11th Circuit said no, uh, as they had in the Florida case. And uh, the state petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, which said no as well, 7-2 to two with a somewhat impassioned dissent by Justice Thomas, a sort of cri de coeur. Uh, among other things, he accused the court by refusing to stay this decision of having, in a sense, told the lower courts how it's going to decide the merits ultimately on the Sixth Circuit case because allowing this to go into effect uh, while that question is pending seems a bit odd unless they already know, a majority of the court already knows that they're going to rule for marriage equality and the main thing to sort out now is which theory they're going to use. Uh, And so Thomas fed into that. Uh, Another thing he did, which should be the ultimate deep six to Baker versus Nelson, uh, he said at the end of his dissent that this is an important constitutional question. And, of course, Baker versus Nelson, the 1972 summary affirmance of a uh, Minnesota Supreme Court ruling rejecting marriage equality, said it didn't present a substantial federal question. Well, now Justice Thomas, one of the Windsor dissenters, joined by Justice Scalia, say that it is an important constitutional question. So anyone who's going to raise Baker v. Nelson now is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Uh, in terms of anything else uh, in marriage equality, uh, sort of uh, a sidelight, uh, it may be recalled that when the district court, Judge Friedman, ruled in Michigan in favor of marriage equality, there was a brief period of time the day after his ruling when clerks were issuing marriage licenses before the Sixth Circuit stayed the decision. Uh, so there were a little over 300 couples who got married that Saturday morning. And uh, Litigation has now been raging about whether those marriages have to be recognized by the state of Michigan. And uh, the federal district court, uh, Judge Mark Goldsmith, ruled on January 15th that once somebody has been married under state law, they have a an important status that cannot be taken away from them without a good justification. And he said there was no compelling justification or even strong justification for taking away recognition from those marriages once they'd occurred. So he ruled that they have to be recognized. And uh, a few weeks later, uh, that that came out on January 15th, a few weeks later, Governor Snyder said, look, we're not going to appeal that ruling. Why do we have to go back to the Sixth Circuit? You know, everything's going to be resolved in June. The Supreme Court's going to ultimately decide. We're not going to waste time. So that group of 300-odd same-sex couples who are married in Michigan remain married the state will recognize their marriages. And if the Supreme Court, by some total fluke of rationality, rules against marriage equality and upholds the Sixth Circuit, it means they had that little window of opportunity one Saturday morning, and they took it, and they've got it. Uh, so that's where we stand on marriage right now. There are, there are still some district court uh, cases pending in the handful of states where we don't have decisions yet. Uh, the Eleventh Circuit has not scheduled oral argument in the Florida and Alabama cases. Instead, they issued an order saying, we're not going to do anything in these cases till the Supreme Court rules. So we're not going to get a decision from the 11th Circuit. Uh, we might get a decision from the 5th Circuit between now and June. Uh, maybe the 8th Circuit, but I doubt it, unless they're going to rush out a decision just weeks after hearing oral argument. So things are sort of coming to a slow halt 
at this point, but uh, surprises remain. I mean, what's going on in Alabama, which we should mention just briefly, uh, we'll have a more detailed account, of course, in the issue, March issue of Law Notes. Uh, the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, Roy Moore, a staunch opponent of marriage equality, uh, issued a command as head of the state court system to the county probate judges who are individually elected in each county and who are charged with issuing marriage licenses and conducting marriages and registering marriages. Uh, he ordered them not to comply with the district court's opinion. He said a federal district court ruling is not binding on the Alabama courts, only a U.S. Supreme Court ruling. And even then he has some doubts because he thinks the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to decide about marriage, that marriage is a matter of state law and state policy. But in any event, uh, his 11th hour order, which he issued uh, the evening of February 8th, right before the stay was going to be lifted, uh, has caused massive confusion in Alabama. And some of the probate judges say they don't believe the order is valid and they're issuing marriage licenses. Some of them say it is valid. Some of them say we're just caught in the middle. We don't know what to do. Our boss, the chief justice, had told us not to issue the licenses. We're not going to issue licenses until there's some clarity. And uh, two uh, suits were filed on the afternoon of February 9th uh, with the federal district court asking for an order to uh, the probate judges to issue licenses. And a hearing is scheduled on that. It hasn't taken place yet as we're taping this. So there will be subsequent developments in Alabama. Some couples have married in those counties where the probate judges are complying with the court's order. So we'll just have to see how that and unfolds. And, of course, many people are commenting about the irony of Alabama, you know, uh, ignoring a federal court ruling. Right. That's happened before. Issue. That's happened before. So uh, we'll see. I think it's it'll be sorted out probably by the time we're doing our next podcast. And the chief justice has been removed once for... Right, uh, the Ten Commandments. Right, uh, he he built a huge Ten Commandments display uh, monument in the uh, foyer of the Supreme Court building during his prior term as Chief Justice. Uh, there was a federal district court order to remove it as a violation of the Establishment Clause. He resisted. Uh, it was ultimately removed forcibly over his objections, and uh, an ethical panel uh, removed him from the court. Uh, but he came back and ran for election again and got reelected. Uh, the folks of Alabama evidently like Roy Moore, and uh, I don't even think it was a close election. So here he is again, and in fact, an ethics violation has been filed against him. But I doubt that that will be resolved anytime soon. Uh, but who knows? Maybe his staunch stand against marriage equality will get him tossed off the Alabama Supreme Court a second time. That would probably set a record of some sort. <laughs> Uh, one other thing, I, uh, yesterday, it's more political news than legal news, but in a new book uh, by President Obama's former chief political strategist, David Axelrod, he reports that uh, President Obama was lying in 2008 about his position on marriage equality. Well, I, I don't think – I think lying may be a strong word. The point is that as a state uh, legislative candidate, he had filled out a form – or his aides had filled out a form which he signed endorsing marriage equality back in the 1990s. Uh, when he became a national presidential candidate, uh, the advice was that you can't really endorse marriage equality and win at that point uh, because he needed support in certain communities where marriage equality wasn't popular. 
Uh, and so he backpedaled, and his official campaign position became civil unions. Uh, he has now uh, reacted to the publication of this book, and he said, well, you know, there's a difference between the official position you take in the campaign and your personal position. And he said, personally, I always believe that same-sex couples should have the same status and rights as different sex couples, but I understood the religious sensitivities involved in calling it marriage. And But ultimately, I concluded that uh, seeing uh, same-sex couples that I knew and the problems that they encountered, that they should be entitled to the same status. Interesting stuff. All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss the Michigan Assistant Attorney General. Many of our listeners will remember from the blog he created in 2010. All right, we are back discussing Chervelle versus Department of Attorney General, a decision from a three-judge panel of the Intermediate Appellate Court in Michigan concerning the dismissal of a homophobic assistant attorney uh, general in 2010 for his deranged and obsessive blog rants and <clears throat> against the openly gay student body president of the time at the University of Michigan. I wrote this uh, story for Lanos this month, so I'm going to run through it. Um, basically, uh, Later on, after the the blog sort of blew up and he had appeared on national television uh, defending the blog, he was ultimately dismissed from his position in the Michigan Attorney General's office, and he uh, filed filed a civil servant's grievance uh, challenging that termination, and also uh, uh, filed a claim for unemployment benefits. Uh, he had lost uh, both of those uh, administrative challenges uh, at the administrative level. Uh, and then uh, sought judicial review in what is called the circuit court in Michigan, which is the trial court. Uh, he, the administrative decision was affirmed on the count of uh, his grievance, but he actually got uh, his unemployment benefits reinstated uh, based on a First Amendment right to uh, uh, his, basically a First Amendment protection for what he had said on his blog. Uh, in back in 2010. Just to go back and talk a little bit about uh, what that was said on the blog, he created a blog called the Chris Armstrong Watch. Um, Mr. Chevelle was also a University of Michigan alum, and apparently the election of an openly gay student body president just sent him over the edge. Uh, he claimed that uh, Chris Armstrong had a radical gay agenda. Uh, he described Armstrong as a racist, a liar, compared him to a Nazi leader, uh, even went so far as to superimpose a swastika over a picture of uh, Chris Armstrong's face in one post. Uh, he again, he spoke on national television defending the blog and also um, basically started stalking uh, Chris Armstrong at different events. Uh, so anyway, uh, he was eventually uh, f dismissed from the Michigan Attorney General's office for conduct unbecoming a state employee. Um, so when this got to the Court of Appeals of Michigan, they uh, consolidated both his uh, dismissal and the uh, unemployment benefits uh, cases into one, uh, because the, really the core issue here was whether or not what he, the outrageous things he said on the blog were protected by the First Amendment. Um, and there's sort of a specific test that the U.S. Supreme Court has created uh, to analyze this, uh, the question of whether a public employee... Uh, is speaking as a private citizen on a matter of public concern. 
uh, and the sort of the, the way it's worded is um, the First Amendment does protect such speech uh, if, a, if a private citizen who is a public employee is speaking on a matter of concern, public concern, and where the state cannot show that its interest in the efficient provision of public services outweighs the employee's interest in commenting on the matter of public concern. Um, The Michigan Appeals Court looked at a couple of the leading cases. They found one from the Second Circuit uh, called Pappas versus Giuliani uh, that involved a New York City police officer who had basically distributed some racist and anti-Semitic literature. Uh, And the Second Circuit in that case found that the police department's uh, interest in maintaining its reputation and relationship with the public outweighed the officer's interest in distributing racist literature. Uh, so the Michigan Appeals Court agreed that this was uh, the facts of this case were much more similar to that than uh, what Mr. Cherval was claiming, and uh, they found that he his speech interfered with the department's internal operations, adversely affected the efficient provision of government services, had a detrimental impact on his relationships with other employees in the office, uh, undermined a specific campaign of the, the Michigan Attorney General at the time, which was an anti-cyberbullying campaign. And it damaged both uh, Chervell's ability to perform his responsibilities and the department's overall uh, ability to perform its mission. So taken all together, uh, they found that uh, Chervell compromised his ability to appear in court as a representative uh, of the citizens of the state, uh, and therefore his speech was not protected under the First Amendment. Um, And neither the termination uh, of his employment nor the denial of unemployment benefits offended the Constitution. Were you going to say something, Art? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, there was some consideration of uh, the local prosecutor bringing charges against Mr. Chevelle of, of violating various criminal statutes, especially the stalking issue, uh, but they decided not to prosecute him. And uh, I think you know, it's, it's interesting in thinking about the First Amendment and controversial speech, especially controversial speech by people who are employed in law enforcement. Uh, that there are so many different aspects of how the First Amendment plays into this. Uh, one is whether they can be punished by their employer for the speech. Another is whether they can be prosecuted by the government for the speech. And another is whether the victim of the speech can seek redress. And you mentioned this at the end of your article that a jury had awarded him substantial, uh, had awarded Chris Armstrong substantial damages. And uh, you'll be writing for the next issue of Law Notes about a new decision by the Sixth Circuit, which came out earlier in February, uh, upholding in part those damages, yeah. but but reducing them somewhat. So uh, it's it's interesting how the First Amendment plays into all those cases, yeah. because uh, defamation law uh, also has to consider whether the speech is protected in terms of deciding whether to award damages. Uh, Personnel policy has to decide whether the speech is protected in terms of a discharge, and uh, the unemployment system focuses on whether the employer had cause to discharge the employee. Uh, And in this case, if his speech had been protected, there would not be legitimate cause for dismissing him. So it it all interrelates, and in fact, you could probably teach an interesting First Amendment segment of a course just out of the various aspects of the Chevelle case. Yes. Um, and it appears, you know, with the, the with with this decision com- combined with the federal appeals court affirming uh, the civil suit damages against him, that he's in a, a bit of financial trouble now for for what he what he did back in 2010. So, uh, I suspect he may be judgment proof. I don't know. 
well, what his what his employment or asset situation yeah. is. I understand he's living in Florida now. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing the California Supreme Court overruling a 20, 2006 decision and reviving mandatory sex offender registration for non-vaginal sex with minors. All right, we're back discussing the case of Johnson versus Department of Justice, a 5-2 decision from the California Supreme Court, holding that the state's sex offender registration law does not violate equal protection when it gives courts discretion whether to impose a registration requirement on adults who engage in vaginal intercourse with minors ages 16 or 17, but mandates registration for other sexual acts involving minors of those ages. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this is is a very interesting case that... uh, really came to my attention more because of the dissent than because of the majority holding. Uh, Johnson, uh, the defendant here, was a, uh, a young man who had oral sex with a teenage girl and was prosecuted under the, uh, under the statute and was uh, hoping to benefit from a prior California Supreme Court decision uh, from 2006, People Against Hofshire, in which the court had held that the distinction between sexual intercourse, which for these purposes is vaginal intercourse, and other forms of sexual contact that existed in California statutes on this point of sex offender registration were invalid, that uh, the majority of the court in that case had seen uh, the defendants as uh, similarly situated for all relevant purposes and couldn't see why uh, the judge could exercise discretion about whether to order registration in the sexual intercourse cases, but not in cases involving oral or anal sex. And so in that case, the court had said judges should have discretion in all cases. Now, in in this new case, uh, the majority of the Supreme Court says, we think that the lower courts have taken this too far, and they've allowed people to avoid sex offender registration in a wide variety of cases where we think it was inappropriate and we've got to rein them in. And what they ultimately decided to do was to reinstate the distinction. And uh, the dissent, written by Justice Catherine Werdiger with the concurrence of Justice Goodwin Liu, pointed out that the distinction derives from a very homophobic history of sex crimes law in California that uh, at the time the sex offender registry was first established, and California seems to have been a pioneer in this, the sex offender registry, back in the 1940s, all sex outside of marriage was illegal. And the only sex that was legal in marriage was sexual intercourse, that is vaginal, penile vaginal intercourse. Every other kind of sex violated one statute or another. And so at the time, they mandated sex uh, offender registration for anyone who was convicted of engaging in illegal sex with a minor. Uh, And they didn't consider uh, sexual intercourse to fall into that category, but they weren't even talking about it. They were talking about sex offender registration for other forms of sexual conduct, conduct. Now, in the 1970s, California reformed their sex crimes laws. They decriminalized consensual sodomy. They decriminalized oral sex, anal sex, uh, they got rid of uh, various other restrictions on non-marital sex. So all of a sudden, uh, a lot of these forms of sex became legal. 
However, there was still the age of consent. There was still the requirement that both uh, parties be consenting adults for it to be legal. And at the time, uh, they left in place the existing uh, sex offender mandate that applied to all uh, sex outside of sexual intercourse between an adult and a minor ages 16 or 17. Uh, and this is what had been struck down in 2006. Now, in reviving this, uh, writing for the majority, Justice Baxter said, obviously, if we're going to treat these people differently, we have to find that there is some distinction between them, which merits differential treatment. And the distinction that he focused upon was that sexual intercourse can lead to pregnancy, and oral and anal sex can't. And that the state of California could be concerned, uh, and he said, you know, we can hypothesize a policy justification here because this is a rational basis case. Sex between adults and minors is not protected under Lawrence versus Texas as coming within the protected liberty interest of the due process clause. So it's a rational basis case. The court can hypothesize a justification. He says it would make sense, it would be rational for the state to consider sex offender registration optional, that is within the discretion of the sentencing judge, in a case involving sexual intercourse because the judge might be concerned that the minor became pregnant and that imposing sex registration on the man would result in disadvantaging the child because of their father uh, being a registered sex offender. That puts restrictions on where he can live, puts restrictions on which occupations he can follow. And so the state's concern for children might justify the differential treatment, uh, pointing out that other forms of sexual intercourse can't lead to pregnancy, and therefore that concern isn't present. Uh, the dissenters were viciously opposed to this. They were, they were horrified. Uh, they said there was no real justification for backing away from the prior decision and uh, that, in fact, uh, because of the way the sex crimes laws are enforced, this has a disparate adverse impact on gay men uh, and, and that the court should take this into account and think about it as part of it and that really – Maybe what is needed are some uh, guidelines to help judges in making their decision whether to uh, require sex offender registration in these kinds of cases. You know, what's the age difference between the parties? Uh, what's the nature of the relationship? There could be consensual relationships between young men and teenage boys, for example, depending upon the age difference, things of that sort. Uh, the question whether to require sex offender registration is a, a delicate one, and it should be a fact-specific determination, not a categorical mandate. Uh, so the issue now is for the California legislature. I mean, the court has revived the distinction. The dissent has provided strong policy arguments. The majority has made their policy arguments in the court. Time for the uh, legislature to address this issue and decide whether the differential treatment is justified. And your discussion made me think back to uh, in remarriage cases, and didn't we get, um, was it heightened or strict scrutiny for we, sexual orientation discrimination? Yes, yeah, sexual orientation discrimination, but uh, the, the question is this is a disparate impact situation. Right. Uh, it's true the, the, uh, the dissent cites law enforcement enforcement studies showing uh, that at least back at the time when uh, the sex crimes laws were liberalized in the 1970s, 
there were established police practices of uh, when given discretion about how to charge, they would charge registrable offenses against gay men because of a bias among the police that gay men should be registered as sex offenders because of uh, stereotypes they had about gay men as being likely to present problems uh, in terms of their sexual conduct. Uh, so, uh, but there is, is definitely a disparate impact case here. But disparate treatment case? Because remember, in the Johnson case itself, it was a man who had oral sex with a teenage girl. And so the uh, cases involving sexual contact other than sexual intercourse sweep broadly across both gay and non-gay people. Right. Uh, so you, you can't really say it's a disparate treatment case. Yeah. You have to treat it as a disparate impact case unless they're willing to accept the argument in a subsequent case, which they might or might not, that the legislature had to know about the dis- disparate impact and intended it, right. which I think is unlikely. Right. Uh, I think that this is a case that's calling out for a legislative response, and the gay rights uh, lobbying groups in California have not been shy about having a very, very wide-ranging agenda. So here's another item to add yeah. to that agenda of uh, things to get from the legislature. All right. We'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment... We'll be discussing a military appeals court decision to void a sodomy conviction based on the erroneous exclusion of evidence about a penis measuring contest among Navy men at Guantanamo. All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition of the podcast. A military appeals court in U.S. versus Villanueva... Uh, found last month that a military judge erred in refusing to let the defense prevent ev- present evidence that might be used to impeach the victim's claim that he was not gay and had given the defendant no reason to believe his sexual advances were welcome. Art, we also learned a lot about Navy life in Guantanamo along the way. Can you tell us about the case and some of the more interesting facts? Well, uh, Mr. Villanueva, who was stationed at the Navy base at Guantanamo Bay in 2011 when these, this incident occurred, he was uh, romantically interested in another uh, naval uh, member uh, and, and expressed this to a friend who told him, well, that guy isn't gay. But, uh, you know, uh, Villanueva was interested, and he asked that the guy be told that he's interested. And subsequently, the guy who is referred to in the uh, opinion as HNP uh, joined Villanueva and his friend at the lunch table. And they're getting into talking uh, about their interests and experiences. And this guy happened to mention that once when he was drunk, he participated in a penis measuring contest in which another man was holding his penis. Uh, and uh, we're, we're not told quite uh, how often such events happen. Uh, and uh, HNP uh, testified later that he had agreed to meet Villanueva because Villanueva was known for his extravagant parties. And uh, the evidence at the court-martial was that HMP said that he was always interested in going to parties and hoping to meet cool women. Uh, But in any event, uh, later after this uh, lunch encounter, uh, Villanueva and HMP and some other people got together for a barbecue near the barracks, and there was lots of drinking, and uh, eventually HMP invited the other people to come to his trailer to continue the drinking, and uh, they were drinking on into the night, and various other people left, 
until it was just Villanueva and HNP, at which point uh, accounts differ as to exactly what happened. But they ended up in the sack together naked, and uh, Villanueva anally penetrated HNP, or at least HNP remembers uh, something going on, and he woke up alone in his bed naked and with a a certain feeling. <laughs> Uh, and there was testimony from uh, his trailer mate that during the night he heard what he described as sexual noises coming from HMP's room. Among those noises, he testified that he heard HMP say, oh, baby, that feels good. But later, after HMP woke up and realized or thought he re- remembered what had happened, he reported it, and Villanueva was subjected to a court-martial. And Villanueva's attorney wanted to be able to explore uh, – the entire past relationship of these two men, the statements that have been made and everything else. But the judge said, no, I will limit you to exactly one question. You can ask HMP whether he's gay, nothing else. And uh, HMP, of course, on the stand denied that he was gay and Villanueva was convicted. And on appeal, the uh, Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals said, well, you know, restricting him on that question basically defanged his whole defense. I mean, the, the whole defense here was consent, that he believed that HMP was interested, that from what HMP had said to him, he thought HMP would be uh, receptive, especially if he was drinking, since he said he'd, en- he'd engaged in the penis measuring contest when he was drinking. Uh, so uh, Villanueva should have been given the opportunity to present evidence to the court-martial jury that he had reason to believe that his sexual attentions were welcome. And so the uh, conviction was remi- was vacated and the case was sent back for retrial. All right. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to know that our, our men in uniform are busy measuring each other's penises <laughs> when they have spare time at Guantanamo. Another reason to close down Guantanamo? <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in March. <laughs>